Welcome to the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast, episode 55. This year on August 21st, for the first time in 99 years, a total solar eclipse will make its way across the United States. A remarkable solar experience for a lifetime. Luckily for us here at Ames, we have the advantage of learning firsthand about what the sun means to our solar system and beyond from NASA's lead scientist for the 2017 total solar eclipse, Dr. Madrulika Guhatarkuta, also known as Lika. Lika has spent most of her career researching the sun and its significant influence on the Earth. Along this journey, she has had the opportunity to work as a scientist and mission designer, while also managing multiple science programs over the years. So, here to talk to us about this year's total solar eclipse and more is Dr. Madrulika Guhatarkuta. a little bit about yourself. How did you end up at NASA? And also, how did you end up in Silicon Valley? Because I know for you, there's two different, those are two different stories, especially coming from Goddard. Well, um, they are. Um, I, was, I, I was in Boulder. I was okay. a graduate student in Boulder. I came from India, came to Colorado. I had a fellowship at High Altitude Observatory and CAR, and then I became a postdoc at um, Colorado University at LASP. And so spent a total of 13 years in that area. And then it was an issue of finding two jobs, you know, two-body problem. My husband is a mathematician, so we moved to the Washington, D.C. area where I had a job at Goddard Space Flight Center. Mm-hmm. And I was a research scientist there. But that was only for five years that I was at uh, Goddard, which is where kind of lot of the ideas of connecting sun and earth sort of started. I did research and flew uh, payloads on uh, Spartan missions, Spartan 201, mm-hmm. five of those. And these were uh, free-flying payloads that Uh, mission specialists, astronauts, would actually deploy to collect uh, observations of the sun, the kind that we will see during the eclipse. So I was a uh, uh, project scientist on white light chronograph, one of the two instruments. It's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of our own from NASA Ames, Kalpana Chawla, was the mission specialist in '94. Oh, wow. this is an okay. astronaut from who was, had started off at NASA Ames. That's correct. So go back a little bit more, um, just to kind of get a little bit about, I'm trying to imagine, you know, a, a five-year-old Lika in India, you know, looking up at the stars, thinking one day I'm going to, you know, <laughs> start studying space. So how, there, how did you get from that point to Colorado? Were you always interested in science? Were you always interested? Did your family encourage this? Like, how? tell us how you got to Colorado. Yeah, I, I was always... Um interested uh, in nature, uh, the sky, the night sky in particular, stars in particular. I mean, who isn't? Yeah, of course. You, you look at the stars and the first question that comes to mind, you know, where did they come from? What are these things? Where did we come from? You know, these are yeah. like big questions for NASA, right? 
But even a child thinks about mm. that, actually. It, because they, these are quintessential human questions. Exactly. They're, they're, they're human questions, not right. just NASA questions. Right. We're it's, just fortunate to get to fasc- work on them. Fascinating, right. So I was always fascinated uh, by stars. Mm-hmm. And and it it's still fascinating to me. I just came from a camping trip in yeah. the mountains. And it's still mesmerizing. We know so much about them that you would think that that romanticism would go away. It doesn't. Oh, wow. Thank God for that. I mean, I'm still blown away being able to see the white Milky Way, right, away from city lights. So how early in your studies or in your career did you start thinking like, okay, here's this big interest in stars, then narrowing it down to, ooh, I have a favorite star. (laughs) <laughs> which is also, <laughs> which is that, also that happens to be the closest yeah. star to I know. us. I know. And, the and the way I say it, the only <laughs> star that counts. The only star it that really counts. It really upsets um, astronomers and astrophysicists. You know, sun not only takes away 12 hours of their observing time, uh-huh. but then I say it's the only star that counts. Seriously. Yeah. Well, it's also, the only planet we know where there's well, life. And it's the only star that provides power to exactly. a lot of those space telescopes. Because without the solar power, they wouldn't even work. Everything. Everything. Right? <laughs> I mean, if you go deep down into it, so I, I say jokingly, but it's also true. <laughs> <laughs> like, kidding, not kidding. <laughs> exactly. In your studies in school, did you move to uh, so, more the uh, heliophysics, the study of the star that, or the that, sun? There was no heliophysics. Oh, really? Even as a concept when I went to school. Okay. So what I did for my master's in India was astrophysics and general theory of relativity. As a matter of fact, you know, I was concentrating more on general theory of relativity and particle physics. Okay. That, that's kind of where the meat of sort of theoretical physics was. And this is 19, uh, late 1970s, 1980, I'm talking okay. of a long time ago. We have made, uh, you know, so much more sort of advancement um, in the area. And then when I came to this country, my goal still was to pursue general theory of relativity, astrophysics. Those were my broad goals. So I came to University of Denver. Uh, When I came there, the two professors that were in astrophysics went on sabbatical. And as a result, I had to work on another area. And that was actually atmospheric physics, but analyzing Mm -hmm. solar carbon monoxide lines. And that's kind of what, and I used to run these really big, massive codes on NCAR Cray computers at NCAR. And um, I was not really that interested in the topic. And I came across this call for fellowship in solar physics at high altitude observatory. Mm-hmm. I applied and I got in. And that's when That's the beginning. My, that's that was the beginning of my effort on applying all of my knowledge of astrophysics to sun as a star. And then after working in that for a while, when you went to Goddard Space Flight Center, one of the, you know, NASA centers um, over in Maryland, was it still working on heliophysics or was it still working on the sun or you something completely different? Heliophysics was still not there. Still back then. Still Still at that point it didn't. So what what I was doing then was um, sun as a star. And you know what I was looking at? Uh, this is something I have to tell because this is so 
school in the context of what's just going to happen yeah. almost a month from now, right? The total solar eclipse. My thesis picture was in Time magazine mm -hmm. in 1988. Oh, wow. And the picture was a picture of the white light corona, eclipsed corona taken by scientists at High Altitude Observatory. This is, I think, from Philippines in 1988. And superposed on that, on the black disk of the sun, was a soft X-ray rocket image. And this was the first of its kind image. You know, today, our telescopes are producing this dime a dozen. That was the first picture, showing yeah. the soft X-ray view of the corona on the disk and the white light. Wow. That's kind of what I was studying, right? I was connecting the surface of the sun to corona. And the fact that the corona blows out all the way into the solar system, you know, we kind of knew that, but that science wasn't kind of that robust. People were pursuing it separately. We used to call heliospheric physics and we used to call solar physics. The heliospheric people just did the heliospheric part, right? Measuring particles, magnetic field, all of that, uh, near Earth or near another planet, like Voyager spacecraft, yeah. like ACE, Advanced Com Composition Explorer. But they were not working with solar physicists. Hmm. I was trying to make that connection. Yeah. So that kind of began, that approach began with my thesis. And when I came to Goddard, yeah. I kind of cinched that even more. So I was working on the Spartan uh, mission where we were getting data, white light data, which is the expanding corona uh, from the Spartan mission. And then we had Ulysses mission going on, which actually went over the poles. Okay, but it didn't have an imaging instrument. It collected data. Okay. So I was trying to connect that the sun to what Ulysses was observing and brought together people from the heliospheric community and solar physics community. So that kind of began the sun-heliospheric connection. <laughs> it still wasn't the sun-earth connection. There's a connection to earth. So that happened after I went to headquarters. So in 1998, I went to headquarters. I was invited to go there and do the stereo mission. Okay. And the stereo mission, you know, essentially had these two spacecraft that are, and they're still doing it, uh, going uh, sort of in an Earth-like orbit, one a little ahead, one a little behind Earth, and gave us the first three-dimensional view of the sun, and then the first view of the far side of the sun. And uh, it, it is quite amazing. Yeah. So while, I was at headquarters doing the stereo mission. Our division director uh, then sort of came up with this concept of a program called Living with a Star. Living with a Star is sort of the program that really sort of ushered us in 2005, I would say, into the field of heliophysics. And Living with a Star, uh, it's, it's I, and I've been the program scientist from its very inception through 2015. Is is the concept being you know you're looking at those kinds of signs that are relevant to life and society. Yeah. 
So it's not just curiosity-driven science only. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just science for science's sake. It's science for science's sake, but that intersection that also have um, tremendous application to life here on Earth. So talk a little bit about, you know, working at, at Goddard and then you're now here over at Ames and you were here before. In fact, like I think it was about a year ago, we met in the cafeteria <laughs> waiting in line for on burrito day or something. <laughs> so talk a little bit about that of like h- how it is that you ended up landing over here at Ames and working on some of this stuff and how that fits. So I had uh, spent um, 15 years working on living with the star program at NASA headquarters, creating many different missions, solar dynamics yeah. observatory, Van Allen probes, uh, solar probe plus, which we just renamed to Parker solar probe, solar orbiter collaboration with European space agencies, many oh, others. Wow. Created a community, international community called International Living with the Star, where all the space agencies became part of it to cooperate and collaborate on this single concept, the Sun-Earth, Sun-Planet connection. Worked with the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, you know, to create, um, you know, space weather as a permanent agenda item there. So, you know, these things were kind of done. Yeah. And I think I was itchy for something new. Uh huh. And. I was always interested in uh, detail at Ames for a long time, but there wasn't any convenient moment to do that Mm -hmm. because I was still so heavily involved in so many of these missions. Yeah. Uh, So when Solar Probe got confirmed, that was a very good time. So I came for half a year, really, and and what's been sort of really, um, what drew me to this place is uh, the connection to the Silicon Valley, the entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. mind, Uh, it's it's a different Different mindset from a typical bureaucracy or even international affairs. Completely, and I'm very drawn to that because you know, I mean, even in my bureaucratic job, <laughs> I think what I have done is tried to create something yeah. out of it. Uh, Ames also has a, a real interesting sort of uh, discipline areas that I, in my yeah. mind, can already see connecting them. Absolutely, yeah. And so I came, so this, this new detail for one year, I'm the lead program scientist uh, for new initiatives in the Exploration Technology Directorate. And it's not just specific to that directorate. Uh, You know, I'm really looking at um, cross-cutting ideas. Yeah, it's one of those really fascinating things of like, you know, Ames has like this very broad, like diverse portfolio. But that's the cool thing is when like you have autonomous systems that interacts with small satellites that interacts with supercomputing or earth science or you know or, or space science or even like bi- space biology like ISS it's like there's weird interconnectivity where all of these you know seemingly different fields can cross and intersect where I think normally if you only focus on one of those, you can kind of miss some of those opportunities. Absolutely. It, it's, uh, you, you said it so beautifully. In fact, <laughs> I've been practicing over one several of episodes. The, <laughs> one of the uh, sort of um, ideas and project I have in mind actually will be bringing all of those together. Oh, wow. So let me tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm planning to host a workshop 
Oh, cool. In uh, late October, early November, really to kind of um, take stock of uh, our current knowledge of mm-hmm. uh, the radiation environment in deep space and also in aviation altitude. Now, if we want to be explorers, right, and yeah, really. go beyond low Earth orbit, we have to tackle it. this problem. Yeah, totally. But even in aviation altitude, we tackle this problem and we don't know the answers <laughs> very well. We know the answers from one or two satellites. So my goal is really to uh, kind of take stock of what's the state of um, instrumentation, sensor development in that area, uh, what is the state of the modeling, uh, mm-hmm. you know, transport. Um, of particles and generation of radiation. And finally, you know, how do we kind of create a platform for distributed approach to collecting radiation? So you talked about small set, you talked about supercomputing, right? That's kind of the modeling world. Um, You talked about uh, space biology. That's the biological end of radiation, right? Radiation effect uh, hardware as well as people. And that is also the same kind of phenomenon also is percolated into the aviation altitude. Oh, totally. for For, uh, especially for high altitude, you know, if you do space tourism. But this is an area, again, you know, I hope I'll be able to work with the aeronautics uh, division here. So it's, it's really, you can take one idea and you can just branch out. One thing that we'd be remiss to mention is looking at, especially in, in all, of all the fields and the workshops and stuff that you're working on. But of course, the big thing coming in, you have the Super Bowl of heliophysics, <laughs> which is even more important than the Super Bowl because it doesn't happen every year. But um, we have this big eclipse, the 2017 eclipse coming on. And this is breaking the fourth wall of the podcast magic. We're actually recording this at the end of July. We will release this podcast, you know, August, 17, uh, August 17th. So right before the eclipse is going to happen. For somebody who's been studying this, what is, like, you have to be feeling super hyped. And you also have to, like, be really excited as it builds into. But, like, kind of what's going through your mind and what are you preparing for? What are you looking at as you get ready for this huge eclipse that's going to cover the entire United States? I don't know that there is any (laughs) one word or sentence that really captures my sentiments. I mean... I am in this hyped state, <laughs> and I think it will remain sustained uh, for the duration. What is um, absolutely joyful is that, and it's, it's almost close to a month before that, I am seeing that the uh, country, the reporters, are getting engaged in yeah. communicating this. This is... Um, such a potential moment, I would say. I mean, I'm going to use big words because that's how I feel. And, you know, you can't predict these things, but that's how I feel. It, it's a, uh, it's an event of history. Absolutely. Where the entire population of America, including Hawaii and Alaska, can view partial solar eclipse. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. You just need protective glasses and you can be wherever you are and look up at the sky. The only thing that will prevent you from seeing this 
directly looking at the skies if you don't have protective eye yeah. cover but even then you can project it right and okay. see it. but the other thing is you know if it's cloud cover yeah so but otherwise everyone everyone wherever you are you can observe this and then people who are on those 14 states yeah. about 70 miles wide the special uh, path called the path of totality uh that is a transformative moment and i kid you not i'm a scientist you know <laughs> i mean keep that in mind and i'm a solar scientist at that but nothing takes away from when you actually look at the eclipse the corona the shimmering pearly halo breathing you know it's dynamic you can see the sometimes the post flare loops the the yeah. structures move you're seeing this with your naked eyes you're seeing the outer atmosphere of the sun and we live in that atmosphere yeah. we don't think about it but you, when you see it yeah. somehow you begin to sense that and and so for me you know if human beings understand that there are so many greater things we could do together Wow, yeah, it, it reminds me of um, a lot of people from Ames are going to be over in uh, in Oregon. Um, in fact, you're going to be heading up to Oregon as well to watch this. Um, NASA TV is doing a huge production that'll last um, throughout the duration of, of like the totality at different locations throughout the day. But we have this drawing up on our whiteboard in our office where it's like it has like the, it says I think like an eighty percent. of eclipse and it was kind of like making that that emphasis of yeah the total eclipse will be up in Oregon but we're still going to get like 80% and it was like still really cool so for the folks who are not necessarily in the path of the totality you're still going to get quite the show imagine most people have never seen an eclipse sun whether yeah. partial or total yeah uh i mean this is this is such a cosmic coincidence and and you know with the population that we have in the country with the technology i mean this happened mm-hmm. 99 years ago but think of our knowledge base today yeah. think of social media think of all the technology you know all the apps the cameras the lens uh the kind of observations we are going to be able to take i'm not even talking about the science science observations which nasa will be doing you know from our operating spacecraft from ground from airplanes from balloons i mean y- you name it and we are doing it right but then there's the other side there are animals right you can actually do animal uh, behavior there'll be uh, cameras in zoos you know animals respond to the yeah. uh, change in ambient yeah. life you know social behavior psychological behavior uh, it it's really uh, quite an incredible moment in talking about like it being impactful for everybody one of the coolest things i saw was a project that's coming out of aims but it's actually with the the survey group um that we've done podcast interviews with different folks from survey here before but talk a little bit about this it's an actual braille book about the total eclipse and so it's basically you know you figure if you're visually impaired you're not going to be able to see the eclipse but they create like NASA worked with them to create a 
book where you can feel it with your hands and, and it's a whole detailed thing of how the totality, how it works, where it's going to go across the United States. So talk it, a little it, bit about it, this. It's, it's really quite amazing. I mean, uh, you know, the steps that NASA will take to make this accessible to almost all, even the ones who are visually impaired through tactile sense, Mm -hmm. you kind of get that imagination basically of what's happening, what's the phenomenon like. And we have done this for the eclipse, for them to be part of it and understand what's going on. We have done this with other missions Mm -hmm. actually. Uh, You know, we, we do it through Braille. Sometimes yeah. we produce music out uh, of the data we collect in the deep uh, space, you know, where we think yes. space is empty, yeah. and it's not. And we measure the particles, and then we actually give them some uh, tone, tonality, yeah. as opposed to a color. That's also mm-hmm. something we do, right? Like in Hubble images, for example. Yeah. So NASA is really, in that sense, very thoughtful in uh, sort of making what we are doing as accessible to everyone as possible. And I think this is such a cool thing. So talk a little bit about what what are your next steps? What are you getting ready for? I mean, this is, people are gonna be listening to this just, you know, the Thursday before the eclipse actually happens. So what is some advice? What do you wanna tell people? Get some some glasses. uh, uh, Absolutely. (laughs) So let me kind of, I want to go back a little bit In um, 2015, when I went Mm -hmm. back to NASA headquarters from Ames after doing half a year stint here, I was given the charge, said, Lika, you are going to lead the eclipse event of 2017. And I I said, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) You know, I mean... This is nature's eclipse, and we are blessed to be be here and having the show in our backyard. But what is NASA going to be able to do? So, you know, there was outreach, engagement, all that going on. And I'm thinking of, you know, how do we bring that added NASA value with science and all of that? Uh, And it took me three, four months to kind of figure out that, you know, we we use NASA as a bully pulpit, basically. Mm -hmm to talk about all our science and eclipse science has happened for centuries and you know with many discoveries in the past very important uh, exoplanet for example yeah. you know the way we observe the first exoplanet is actually a phenomenon of eclipse yeah where you know the transit uh, method exa- is an eclipse exactly <laughs> so we have such an opportunity to teach everyone that eclipses are predicted through physics. It's uh-huh. the science, it's the math, because there are lots of people who don't believe, right, that that these are actually scientific phenomenon. So this became kind of a goal, right? This is This is like a huge way to educate people about all the science we do. You know, general theory of relativity was verified. Mm-hmm. Was verified. Was Einstein exactly. during an eclipse? They could see the exactly. star. So there is no science really oh, wow. that's kind of untouched by the yeah, eclipse. It's fa- the moon. It's the moon's shadow. LRO 
Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has given us such exquisite data with which folks at Goddard Visualization have created mm -hmm. the umbral shadow and we didn't have anything like that before. The umbral shadow used to be a circle before and now it's a polygon because it takes into account, you know, the topography of the moon where the mountains and valleys are. And as the shadow moves through USA, you can see it interacting with the topography oh, wow. of our planet, our, uh, you know, mountains and valleys and you'll see the shape change. Fascinating. Right. So yeah. you're learning science even as you are doing prediction of the eclipse and we are constantly refining this. And so finally, what I want to say, I, this was an audacious task. Yeah, of course. And I have at helped kind of bring this connectedness to the interdisciplinary science for mm -hmm. eclipse. But it was still the question, how do you get to touch everyone, inform everyone, right? And I think the United States Postal Service kind okay. of with one swoop solved that problem. Yeah. So think of any agency that really <laughs> yeah. literally touches everyone. Exactly. Right? Door to door. <laughs> door to door. And, and so when they approached us last year that they wanted to create an eclipse stamp, and you know, I participated in yeah. that uh, event and worked with them. And then unveiling of the fabulous stamp, you know, first ever kind, mm -hmm. forever stamp. It's a thermochromic stamp with the eclipse image with the dark oh, wow. uh, center. And then if you put your body heat into the dark region, then it transforms and gives you the topography of the moon. Oh, cool. That's a stamp that is within reach for everyone in America. So you can see how agencies have come together to kind of celebrate this moment. I'm pretty happy. So, okay, we're looking at the eclipse and how that interacts with the moon and stuff, but talk a little bit about like, you know, probes, any solar probes, stuff like that, 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 that are going to also like, not just learning about the sun, you know, through an eclipse, but then actually going there, seeing for itself. So eclipse is a cosmic phenomenon. Nature created it, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we just are incredibly lucky mm -hmm. to be able to witness this. And what an eclipse does is gives us a view very close to the corona. And so we can't actually have that view any other way, not even from our uh, telescopes in space. Moon is a perfect occulter and does not scatter light or anything. So it's, it's ideal. Now, you know, human ingenuity just doesn't stop <laughs> with nature providing us with an opportunity we create our own. And that's the story of Solar Probe Plus, which has just been renamed to Parker Solar Probe to okay. honor Eugene Parker, who really kind of discovered the phenomenon of solar wind way, way back. And this mission, literally, a year from now, between July and August of 2018, is going to go touch the sun. So the eclipse corona that we will see in the path of totality Parker Solar Probe will actually go to that environment to measure 
locally the conditions of the corona so that we can really answer some of the most pressing questions not only of heliophysics i think of astrophysics of physics in general and the two questions are when you look at the sun the yellow ball that we look at mm-hmm. the temperature of that surface compared to the corona the corona is much much hotter than the photosphere of the sun the corona is millions of degrees and so common sense kind of suggests that if you kind of move away from a source of fire the temperature should go down yeah and in this case it's kind of going up dramatically oh, wow. so question number 1 what hits the corona Huh. Even though we have theoretically from and from remote sensing observations have ideas, you know, that maybe deposition of magnetic waves, sound waves, yeah. lots of different ideas, but we still don't know because locally we haven't been able to measure it, right? It's all sort of remote sensing observations and theoretical And so, and so let me clarify this because this is the thing that's like because I'm feeling my mind being blown because it's like obviously the sun's very hot. It's very hot. There's nuclear explosions inside, uh, inside, deep in the core, inside the core. Right. You're saying it's like the sun as you like like as you get away from the sun, like it's hot, obviously. But you're saying that at some points when you get further from the sun, it actually increases in temperature. Yes. So that's you're absolutely right. So there's the uh, radiative zone, the core. Yeah. You know where you have fusion, which actually generates the heat, takes a long yes. time for that to propagate out, and so the temperature is gradually decreasing till that's it what, gets that, that to makes the sense. photosphere. Like, so there's a flame, right? you get away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And until you get to the photosphere, that's what we are looking at. Then the part that we normally can't see with our naked eyes, the corona. When you get to the corona, the outermost atmosphere of the sun, all of a sudden it increases in temperature dramatically. Oh wow! Huh? That's weird. So that that's that's <laughs> a mystery, a puzzle, and an important science question. So that's one. The yeah. second question is. that the corona is not static mm-hmm. so corona is full of particles these are we call them in plasma state where the um, ions you know have electrons stripped away so you mm-hmm. have electrons protons ions and they are escaping the pull the gravity of sun and blowing out and we call this solar wind hmm. and the wind can be gusty or it can be you know slow or breezy or stormy kind of to borrow yeah. terrestrial weather kind of words so the question is you know again something has to put energy into the system for the solar wind to accelerate so these are kind of very important questions but they are not only important questions that we want to answer from a curiosity point of yeah. view this is also the region where space weather phenomenon is born right because we live in this atmosphere mm-hmm. this charge particles interact with our satellites create radiation for our astronauts or uh, you know high altitude passengers or creates the auroral light show or creates transformer failure uh, any number of things you know so the impact of these conditions on our technology is 
the phenomenon of space weather. So if we understand this better, we can do better predictions mm -hmm. and therefore uh, people can take, you know, operators of various things can take mitigating steps. So for folks who are listening, um, who are looking, who are getting ready, getting hyped, ready for the eclipse, um, what we'll do is we'll put all of the nasa.gov um, links and uh, websites up in the, show, in the show notes so people can just go sit there, click on that for more information on the eclipse, but then also for the live coverage that'll happen at NASA TV. And you will see Lika um, uh, at the Ames portion <laughs> over in Oregon um, live as it's happening. So and we're all keeping our fingers crossed for bright, <laughs> clear skies <laughs> so that we can exactly. get the best view. But so anybody listening, if you have any questions for Lika, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Uh, go ahead and feel free to send us some questions and we'll get back to Lika because uh, it looks like you have a lot more exciting stuff even happening into October and as it goes into your workshop. So, But thank you so much for coming over. This has been way fun. Thank you, Matt.